Welcome to the Coffee with Kareem podcast. This is Kareem Sirajuddin. In honor of Black History Month, I thought this would be a great time to release this show on Islam in Brazil or the history of Islam in Brazil. It's not quite um, North American black history, um, but it is South America. And um, I think what was really great about this conversation is we talked a little bit about just Muslim African history in general. Um, we talked about the transatlantic slave trade. We talked about Mensa Musa, the great king of West Africa, and the possibilities and research around how African Muslims were already crossing over to the Americas uh, before the Portuguese and the Spanish. And of course, we get into specifically uh, the history of Islam in Brazil. So I hope you really enjoy the show and uh, learn something for those of you who enjoy history. And please, please support this podcast by leaving me a review on iTunes, sponsoring a coffee or more at patreon.com slash coffee with Kareem. I love doing this show. And uh, when I get support from the audience, whether it's a review or sponsorship, it really helps uh, me make more time for putting together these amazing conversations. If you become a patron today, you can submit your own questions to some of my future guests. So you don't want to miss out on any of that. Thanks again for your support and tuning in to the Coffee with Kareem podcast. Welcome to another episode of Coffee with Kareem. Today I have Brother Habib Akandi returning once again for another amazing show. Today we're going to be discussing the history of Islam in Brazil. Brother Habib is a British-born writer and historian of Nigerian descent. He is the author of five published books on race, erotic Muslim literature, and Afro-Brazilian history, and he is currently working on producing a documentary about being black and Muslim in Brazil. Brother Habib, thanks again for coming on the show today. Thank you very much for inviting me, Kareem. How are you? Alhamdulillah, man. I'm having my coffee. Alhamdulillah. <laughs> and by the way, some of my favorite beans on earth are from Brazil. So it's a, it's a real good connection we got going here. MashaAllah. <laughs> Have you had Brazilian coffee beans before? No, I haven't actually. I've heard much about it, but I haven't. I'm not really much of a coffee drinker. I'm more of a hot chocolate drinker, to be honest. MashaAllah, man. Well, what's interesting is... Um, where I live, when you go to these nice free trade coffee shops and they've got all these brilliant beans from all over South America, which is, I'd say, my favorite uh, region of, of coffee. Um, and uh, when they get these Brazilian ones in season, um, I'm like, man, this stuff is amazing. And then when I, I've been to Brazil myself and when I went there, I was like, where's all that good coffee that I was having back in the States? Um, <laughs> it's not as it's not as common, I think, with the, the everyday people. And I'm like, well, you guys all ship your good stuff outside and leave the uh, the regular okay stuff in the country, which was a little disappointing, but mashallah. <laughs> Mashallah. <laughs> so brother Habib um, this is a very interesting documentary that you're working on and an interest and I know that you are very uh, involved in, in historical um, you know African history Muslim history um, so the, why don't you start us off by what inspired you to do this documentary on the history of Islam in Brazil it's following on from my book um, my book illuminating the blackness blacks and African Muslims in Brazil which explores Brazil's race relation history, um, race relations, sorry, in the history and also the country's African Muslim heritage. And um, being, obviously, like you mentioned earlier, British-born Nigerian, I, I, 
so British born Muslim of Nigerian um, descent. Um, I was aware, I was initially informed about the history of um, Muslims, especially Nigerian Muslims in Brazil, um, when I went to a Saturday school between the ages of 10 and 11. It was a Pan-Africanist Saturday school run by non-Muslims, and they were teaching us the history of black people in history and what they've contributed. And they also mentioned the history of um, Yoruba Muslims, and the Yoruba, Yoruba is a tribe in Nigeria, which is which I'm from. And, and that sparked my curiosity, because I was thinking, well, there's Muslims in Brazil, dating back to like to the 19th century and they led a number of slave revolts um they were very strong in their faith and they tried to preserve their religion by teaching people about islam they set up private and um, quranic schools and that for me that was just like amazing that like, these were enslaved muslims but still yet despite that they still tried to not only preserve their faith but also teach other people about their, their, their about the religion of islam so from a very young age i was aware about the history of um like i said the muslims in brazil and later on in life, when I read a couple of other books and I went to Brazil the, for the first time in 2014, I thought it might be interesting to not only let people know about the contributions that Muslims have made in um, Brazilian history, but also for people outside of Brazil to kind of know about it, because not many people are aware about this great history that Muslims have made in Brazil and the impact that they've given society. Right. Now, when from your research, so I heard you say that there was there's the Yoruba tribe of Nigeria, which are majority Muslim, and they had a presence in Brazil through the slave trade. Is that correct? And what were some other countries that the Portuguese, the Spanish, the Dutch um, brought uh, slaves to Brazil from in Africa? Yeah. So um, when we're talking about the transatlantic slave trade um, in terms of Brazil, majority of the Africans that were enslaved were transported from modern-day Nigeria, Benin, and Angola because of the Portuguese. They used to, um, obviously, they colonized Angola. They also, what many people aren't aware of, they colonized Nigeria before the British. Really? That's why I didn't of, know that. Yeah, wow. that's that's why even like our former capital city, Lagos, is a Portuguese name. It's not a and that's some of the connection. So a number of the enslaved Africans that were transported between the 16th and 19th century, a number of them were from West Africa especially the last 100 years, the last century um, of slavery in Brazil, 30% um, of the enslaved West Africans were Muslims, and a number of those were of from the Yoruba tribe and some were from the Hausa tribe. And that's why a large population of the enslaved Africans were Muslims. So what percentage are some historians estimating as far as the slaves that were brought to Brazil were actually Muslim? 30%. Wow, 30%. Yeah. And do you have do you have any idea what the stats are for North America because I've heard similar numbers for North America as well. For North America I've heard in bet between 10 to like 30 as well, but again it depends on what period because what you what you had was in the first couple of hundred years of of slavery so between like the 15th and mid 17th or early early late 16th century. A number of the enslaved Africans were coming from this, were coming from Central Africa, and then towards the end of slavery, the last couple of hundred years, that's when a number of the Europeans were enslaving people from West Africa, from the Bight of Benin, which is modern-day Nigeria and um, Benin. So when you're looking at West Africa, most of those Africans would have been Muslims, whereas if obviously when they were enslaving um, Africans that were coming from Central Africa, a number of those people Africans were not Muslims. So it depends what period you're looking at. Got it. Got it. Okay, so about 30% of the African slaves brought to Brazil were Muslim, and the majority of those Muslims were coming from Nigeria, Angola, and what was the third place? No, majority of those Muslims were coming from Nigeria and Benin. 
Benin, okay. And Angola, they weren't Muslim there, or they also had a Muslim population? No, Angola, they weren't Muslim. There's a very small Muslim population in Angola. Majority of the Muslims came from Nigeria and Benin. Got it, got it, okay. So um, so walk us through here um, from, from your research and, and even maybe what your documentary is trying to put together. So where does it, where does it start? So it gives us, first of all, this realization and this historical um, reality that we had about 30% who came were Muslim. So when these Muslims arrived to Brazil, what are some of the early uh, documentations of stories or narratives of these early Muslims? How did they assimilate? How did they preach Islam? How did they maintain their identity? Okay, I'll discuss that, but the actual documentary starts in the 14th century, because not many people are aware of that. Then the first Muslims to arrive in Brazil was actually in the 14th century from Mali. I'm sure you're aware of Mansa Musa, everyone's aware of Mansa Musa, the famous Mali um, emperor. Yes, but hold on a second. I want you to give us a quick uh, summary of who he is for those that don't know. So Mensa Musa was a great king of, of the kingdom of um, Western Africa, specifically locate, localized in Mali, correct? That's that's correct. And his famous pilgrimage when he traveled from Mali to um, Mecca, he was known to be very generous and he, he gave away lots of gold, so much so that he he um, you could say that he, he affected the economy in Cairo because he the amount of gold that he gave to the to the local people. It, it greatly affected the, um, the economy. So that's why, I mean, his story is known not only, like I said, in Africa, but also in Europe as well. So much so there was a famous painting that was that showed the painting of him holding the gold nugget. And this was seen as one of the reasons why the Europeans invaded parts of like West Africa because they were known to have a lot of wealth and opulence. Um, but Mansa Moose, obviously everyone, I'm sure a lot of people know who he is, but his predecessor, Abu Bakari II, he he. There's many reports from historians that he actually travelled um, across the Atlantic Ocean and landed in Brazil in 1312. Subhanallah. Yeah, and landed in 1312 in uh, in, a, in a city now called Recife in, in northeastern Brazil. So, in terms of my documentary, it wouldn't actually start in terms of looking at the enslaved African Muslims. It will start by looking at the travels of Abu Bakr II, who is the predecessor of Mansa Musa. We don't know much about um, Abu Bakr II's life other than the report which Mansa Musa gave to a number of Egyptian historians when he made his pilgrimage to Mecca about his predecessor who left, who wanted to understand, he wanted to know if there was another land past the Atlantic Ocean. So that's why he took a number of ships along with a number a number of his comrades, and um, there's some reports that that, he, that I said, like I said, that he landed in Recife, and even a number of the Portuguese when they arrived in Brazil a couple of hundred um, about a hundred years later, they found some gold spears that were from West Africa, which was which is one of the reasons why a number of um, historians um, are of the opinion that. Uh, Mansa Musa and other West Africans did actually arrive in Brazil before the Portuguese colonizers in the fifteen in fifteen hundred. Subhanallah. Yeah. So was it fifteen hundreds or thirteen fifty two? I think you said he, earlier. So Abu Bakari the second landed in thirteen twelve, but mm. Portuguese landed in Brazil in fifteen hundred. Right, and I don't know if you're familiar with an author named um, Leonard Weiner. He, I think, um, again, this is my, my memory's fuzzy, but when I was taking uh, some history courses back in the day, um, this book surfaced when I was in university, and it actually discussed similar points that you're making about how West Africans were crossing over to the Americas, both the North and South, um, obviously way before the 
uh, Europeans, and that Leonard Weiner in his book, he actually discussed how there were also gold coins with Arabic written on it found as early as the 10th century, um, dating back to the 10th century. So Allah knows best, but have you ever come across anything like that where it was even earlier than 1312? Yes, I actually came across um, his book, and I made reference to it in my book. He's, it was a three-volume book. It was called African Discovery of America. And there was also another professor called um, Ivan Van Sertima who followed up from Leo Weiner's book and talking about like the 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 um, the relics, some of the relics and the manuscripts they found of 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 Muslims or Arabic-speaking people in the Americas. Now, I'm not going to say that which some people say that like Africans or Muslims discovered um brazil because i think that's um i think that's inaccurate because there's some reports that there were even some europeans who traveled to america even before the portuguese so that's something that i think even and also the term discovered is problematic because there was people there was natives living in brazil so it's not for anyone to say that such and such person discovered the country but we can say that definitely there were some muslims who traveled to like parts of america's um whether south america north america before the port before the portuguese colonized that we are we definitely are aware of Right. Well, I'm so glad you know of that book, Leonard Weiner. So he wasn't he from Harvard originally? Yeah, Harvard. Harvard yeah, Harvard University. He was a historian and linguist. Okay, died, great. I'm died, glad. I'm glad you and... validated me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so very, my memory serves correct. Yeah, very good book. Very good book. It's a free volume book, um, and it's fascinating reading. That stuff again. As we as Muslims, I think that's part of our history and something which non-Muslims are saying this as well. But again, for some reason, many Muslims aren't aware of this, and it's part of our history, which I think it's definitely a book that I would definitely recommend people to read. Excellent, excellent. And I love how you qualify this idea of, you know, it's not like anybody discovered North and South America, they already existed. And in fact, the the natives of North and South America could say the same thing about us, you know, the people who came over, like, well, we discovered that you existed once you came over here too, right? So it's almost like everybody existed, and we just learned and started to come to know one another um, for the first time, perhaps, is a more accurate way to place this this idea. Exactly, exactly. And and you know what else? Just another side note. I mean, I remember I had a friend in university. He was from Haiti, and he used to show me pictures of his family. He was a convert to Islam, yet his name was Hatim. Like, I was like, oh, is that your convert name? He's like, no, that was my, my given name by my parents. But, you know, I, my parents are from Haiti. I said, that's interesting. He said, yeah, man, I, th- I really think Muslims were in Haiti uh, from, from way back when. And he showed me a picture of family gatherings, and the dress that they had, Brother Habib, was just like Nigerian clothing. SubhanAllah. Yeah, there, there, there was... Um... In Haiti, Cuba, and even in Jamaica, there was a, a Muslim presence, like going back to like the 18th, 18th, 17th, and definitely the 19th century. So I wouldn't be surprised if, even if his parents were non-Muslims, maybe his his parents' parents or parents' parents' parents were Muslim. So that's not something which is surprising. Let's take us to 1312 when Abu Bakr. You said the uh, ruler Abu Bakr was was crossing over. Yeah, so Abu Bakr the second. Um, landed in Recife, northeastern Brazil, approximately in 1312. We don't have much information in terms of um, the people that he settled with, what they did in Brazil, other than um, there were some manuscripts and um, some coins and a spear, allegedly from West Africa, which indicate that um, that's where he he, he landed. Um, but in terms of after, um, like you could say, 1312, we know about obviously the Muslims that, like I mentioned earlier, the estimated 30% of most African Muslims that were transported to Brazil, predominantly in the 18th century, um, from the Bayat of Benin. Now, a number of these Muslims that were enslaved, they were educators and they were also prisoners of war because there were a number of um, 
wars in the Oyo, the Oyo Kingdom, which is in West Africa, in modern-day Nigeria. So a number of these enslaved West Africans, that were Muslims, that were transported to Brazil, they were educators and well-known in, in terms of understanding the religion of Islam, but they're also warriors as well, which is going to be important, which I'll, I'll speak about a bit later, when they led a number of slave revolts. Now, a number of these West Africans, once they arrived in Brazil, even a number of the European commentators, like you had um, in 1856, there was a representative, the representative of France in Brazil, he was the, he landed he was he stayed in Brazil for about eighteen months. They had mentioned that there was an, a, a type of black people amongst the black people that were different to the others, and he was referring to the Muslims. He said that they were very literate, they were educated, they were very proud of some of like their customs in terms of how they used to pray, and he even speculated that they might have not even been actually black people. He speculated that they might be Arabs because the way they conducted themselves with such dignity, and again, like I said, they were literate and they kept themselves aloof from the other. Africans who weren't Muslims, so that's why, and that's something that he mentioned in a couple of his um, letters um, to, in, in France. And also, what he did mention is that a number of those Muslims they bought Qurans, and there was a report that they bought over a hundred Qurans in one year. And this is something that I mean, Subhanallah, this is something this is amazing in the 19th century, despite that they were enslaved, and they were able. Because in terms of understanding slavery in Brazil, it was, it was quite different to how slavery was conducted in America. And what I mean by that was that although, yes, slavery was very harsh in Brazil, a number of the enslaved Africans were able to work on the side and like have an, like in, in addition to their duties, like fulfilling their duties to their master, was able to work on the side and also buy their freedom or just work some work on the side to kind of build a bit of money. Sorry, to save a bit of money. And a number of these um, Muslims... They saved enough money to buy Qurans and to teach people. And like I mentioned a bit earlier, too, they built some private Quranic schools and they taught not only Muslims, but non-Muslims about Islam and, and taught them Arabic, which, again, this is amazing. And there's manuscripts which are available today, which is held in a number of libraries in Brazil, where you can see the um, like text like where they're writing verse of the Qurans and du'as um, asking for forgiveness, seeking forgiveness from Allah and making du'a for all the Muslims. Wow. So these are manuscripts found in libraries, or are there any found in museums? And if so, where where could these potentially be found if one was to scope it out? There's a library, Afro-Brazil Museum in Sao Paulo. They, they've got a number of manuscripts, which I was fortunate enough to see for myself. Um, and there was also there's also a couple of manuscripts held in a library slash museum in Salvador. It's called the African, I think it's African. African something museum, but it's 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 still preserved today, um, and they've also um, they put it on screen. So obviously not everyone can touch it. So it's in like it's in special compartments where you have to go with the same way like in Europe or America. It's not anyone. It's not easily available to anyone. But they've taken photographs of it, and you can actually kind of see it, and you can read the Arabic scripts where they're writing verse from the Quran. Um, and du'as and things like that. And it's just, it's just remarkable. And that's something that's going back since the 19th century. Subhanallah, subhanallah. That's amazing. So so that, so that you these are some manuscripts that you've seen yourself. And it was, I guess it was readable for you. You could actually make it out and like yeah. recognize very clearly. Like, oh, this is, I know exactly what this is saying. Yes, yes. And that's something that hopefully, inshallah, is going to be featured in my documentary. And I did make reference to it and showed some of the pictures in my book as well. And also what a number of these West African Muslims during the 19th century, what they did, they led a number of slave revolts. Um, there was a number of slave revolts in Salvador, which was the former city, former capital city of Brazil during the colonial period, which is in northeastern Brazil. They led a number of slave revolts between 
1807 and 1835, there was about six slave revolts in total. Wow. And I mean, even just because, I mean, some people, because I just want to make sure people, because when I've told people about Salvador, they keep getting Salvador, the city, mixed up with, um, I think there's a country called El Salvador, or there's like an American state, then Salvador. So, yes, it's totally different. It's Salvador in Bahia, I'm referring to. And it's the same city um, which... Do you remember the Michael Jackson video, They Don't Care About Us? Uh, vaguely, but uh, but there keep was, going. There was, a, there was a video that Michael Jackson shot, I think it was in 90, mid to late 90s, I think it was. It was called They Don't Care About Us, and he and that was filmed in Salvador, in Brazil. And he was wearing the T-shirt throughout the, throughout the music video um, with the word Olodum. And Olodum is a Yoruba word from the Nigerian language for the most high. And that is... Olodum is a is a um it's a group it's an Afro-Brazilian like carnival group where they teach people about black empowerment and things like that and that group which was which was set up in 1974 it was set up paying homage to the African the West African Muslims who led the number of slave revolts which we're, which we're speaking about who were known as the Malays the Malays were that's what the Muslims were referred to in the, amongst the Portuguese and Brazilians in the 19th century the Malays, and they were called. The Malays. Yeah, they were called the Malays. And is Malays, is Malays a Portuguese word? Well, some people, there's a, some historians are of the opinion that maybe it's from the word Mali or it's from, um, in the Yoruba language, Imale means to study. And because the Muslims were known to study, that's why there were some Portuguese, I mean, some historians of the opinion that that's where that word comes from, from Imale, which is known as to study. And it's a word that in modern day Nigeria now, that's what people call the Muslims. Got it. Got it. No, thank you for clarifying. So take us back to these five rebellions that happened in north um, eastern Brazil. Yeah, so the the five rebellions in um, first one was in 1807. And then there was another one in 1809 and then another one, I think, 1814 and then 1835. These rebellions, they were mainly organized by either Yoruba Muslims or Hausa Muslims. Hausa is another ethnic group in modern-day Nigeria. And because a lot, a number of, like I mentioned earlier, a number of the Yoruba and as well as the Hausa Muslims were prisoners of war because there was a number of um, wars going on during that time in the Oyo Kingdom in southwest Nigeria, in modern-day southwest Nigeria, a number of those enslaved Africans, they were they were warriors. And obviously they were, edu- they were educated about Islam and things like that. So for them to be enslaved, especially to be enslaved by a non-Muslim, was seen as something quite... Tra- traumatizing, to say the least. Very traumatizing, to say the least. And even when they were interrogated, I mean, there were... I mean, there's some really, fa- you know, fascinating passages where sometimes interrogators, the police interrogators would say, why don't you give up your religion? And they said, even if you gave me all the money in the world, I wouldn't give it up. I wouldn't give up. I wouldn't give up my religion for the sake of like the, the, uh, the, the wealth of this world and things like that. And there were people that even during that period, the Portuguese had a respect for the Muslims. And what we should remember as well is that the Portuguese they were aware of Islam from the time of Andalus, when obviously we know the Muslims occupied or or ruled Spain and modern-day um, Portugal. So they're aware of Muslims and, and the history that the Muslims have had. And they, they saw the Muslims as being somewhat troublesome. And that's why they wanted anyone who had any traces of Islamic, you could say, appearance or dress or or manuscripts in Arabic, they wanted to kind of put a squash to it. And they unfortunately, they um, deported a number of these Muslims and they also exiled them. Um, some were executed, unfortunately. Some were 
tortured to the point where unfortunately some of them left the, the religion of Islam. But in terms of looking at actual slave revolts, um, those five slave revolts, unfortunately a number of those slave revolts were put to an end before they really managed to kind of gain any momentum because there was a number of um, informants within the, the, the Africans. So like with many plots, it's generally someone that's in within the, within you know within the group, which unfortunately, which kind of informs like the authorities what's going on, and that's why even the most famous slave revolt in eighteen thirty five, it only lasted um, for about thirty six hours, and it, originally they planned for the revolt to take place on the day on the night of Laylatul Qadr, the night of the of the day that the Quran was revealed to the Prophet Muhammad peace be upon him. Because they wanted to, they saw this as a holy day, obviously from the Islam perspective, and they and they used this day as a day to hopefully, inshallah, to try and not necessarily overturn and like create an Islamic state, which some unfortunate, um, unfortunately, some Western historians um, allude is it was just in order to gain freedom. So did did they want to kind of have their own, um, li- you know, liberty and their own like state or region exactly? I mean, what was the purpose of the rebellion besides obviously being free? Was it to establish their own autonomous state? And how, what was the nature of these rebellions? Are we talking, was it a military rebellion? Was it, you know, through knowledge and marching? I mean, what, what, what does the documentation suggest? The documentation suggests that it was definitely a mini- it was a military um, revolt, and it, but it wasn't to establish like an Islamic state. It was mainly they were fighting against the oppression that they were, pers- they, were they were receiving. And what was interesting about these rebellions, although most of the um, the rebels were enslaved people, there was also a number of free Africans who also contributed to this rebellion because they were fighting for the other brothers, not only the, the brothers in faith, but the other brothers in humanity that were enslaved. And that was something that was really remarkable about this rebellion because it was um, it was very similar to the rebellion which took place in the Muslim world in Iraq, um, the Zand Rebellion in the ninth century, when a number of Black Africans um, rebelled against the Iraq the Iraqis who who, who who transgressed against them in terms of how they were treating them. So that's something that I think I'm, I'm glad you asked that because to make that clear because some commentators have have said that oh they were trying to make an islamic state and it was jihad and in reality they were just fighting against the injustice that they were pers- that they were, they were that they'll be they'll be put under so it wasn't like they were trying to establish like islamic state or anything like that it's just, it's just that they were fighting for their not only their freedom but the freedom of the other brothers and sisters not only those who are within the same faith as them but just for fighting against slavery as a whole and that's why a number of even today a number of Brazilians, especially Afro-Brazilians, have adopted and incorporated um, the spirit of the Malays, the West African Muslims, because they were fighting against injustice. They didn't. They didn't look at them as if, as if they're just fighting because it's a religious war or holy war. No, they were fighting against injustice, and that's why you find a number of Afro-Brazilian activists, hip-hop artists. They take from the Malays. They make reference to them a lot in a lot of their activism that they're doing now against fighting against anti-black racism because these were people that were fighting against injustice and that's why i think it's something that we as muslims should not only like be proud of but try and incorporate in our daily lives and draw inspiration from which not many non-muslims are doing i don't think it's even appropriate to call them rebels or that this was a rebellion i mean if anything they were fighting for their god-given right to be free Right. And it's like to the Portuguese, maybe they're rebels. Right. But it's like, excuse me, you're the ones that stole these people from their homeland and now you're enslaving them. So um, it's not really, you know, a negative thing that they were trying to get this liberation and be able to live uh, as free human beings. What, what, What would you say about that? 
to be honest, you are absolutely right. And that's something that I struggled with myself was calling them rebels and saying it was a revolt as opposed to calling them what they were, were freedom fighters. So I think what you said is true. And I think even that's something that when you hear the word rebels or revolts, it does sound like it's just reactionary and and they can sound like they're the ones that are problematic. They're the ones that's causing trouble. And in reality, they're just fighting for their God-given right, like you mentioned, to be free and they're fighting for their dignity. So, yeah, maybe to call them freedom fighters, which is, I would say, a better suited word rather than rebel. So, uh, right. yeah, I'm pleased that you said that. Yeah, and even if it was, you know, a religious drive or a religious cause, again, what's the problem with that? You know, I mean, that's 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 part of who they are. That's part of their consciousness, their identity. And again, it's not like the Portuguese brought all these people over and were like, okay, everyone can practice their religion. They, they Roman Catholicized the whole land. So they did the same exact thing that they may claim that some of these African Muslims were trying to do, which was establish a sovereign state and be able to freely practice their religion. The difference is, is they didn't have the equal amount of manpower and gunpower um, to, to make it happen as easily. I agree, 100%. That's true. I agree. Good point. That's a good you point. You know, because I think oftentimes, especially in historical discussions, when we're coming from a Western perspective, it's like there's all there's this automatic footing of like, you know, what goes against the ones in power is automatically the wrong ones. But it's like, well, why are the people in power in power in the first place? Usually because of wrong actions. And this is something well known that, you know, many European nations totally exploited and harnessed more resources than other nations. And some argue this is the reason why they were able to uh, advance. It's not because they had any other magic secrets to the universe. They just had more gunpowder, more people and enslaved more people and used those resources. So if you have more of all that you're probably going to advance than the next guy aren't you no that's true and that's something i'm glad you said that because that's something that we don't generally like and i'm talking about we as generally as muslims challenge that in the beginning so these people that's reacting why are they reacting like you said it's looking at the people that are in power how did they get that power and it's generally in most cases they've, they've exploited people so it's not even no, i'm glad you said that because it's not even like that they are reacting just for the sake of reacting it's that they're trying to get back what is rightfully theirs Exactly. It's like you're, you're trying to get back a little bit of what's already been totally robbed from you and inevitably an oppressive situation. I mean, now you're in this new land, you're disconnected from everything you know and everyone you knew. And uh, and now all of a sudden you're trying to make the best of it. So subhanAllah, I mean, it's a very difficult situation. But let me ask you this. During these rebellions, were there was there any contact or support from West African Muslims or otherwise? No, not really. Other than other than the West Africans who were coming, who who were coming to Brazil in terms of those that was enslaved, but there wasn't much contact in the sense of because obviously the the distance between traveling from West Africa to Brazil was like a journey which took approximately three months. So it's not like they could have any contact in terms of to get more arms or anything like that. The only thing that they did do was that a number of the when a number of slave ships were going back to west africa to try and get more slaves that they'd made they just told them about what was going on so they had some reinforcements in that respect but not in terms of like arms or or anything like that unfortunately i see i see okay so we had these five rebellions and it seems like every time there was a wave um throughout the early 1800s uh it got struck down pretty quick that's correct so what? So the last rebellion was in 1835, which you said lasted approximately 36 hours. It was meant to launch on Laylat al-Qadr. So what what happened after that? So basically what happened after that, I mean, the Brazilian authorities, they had enough of the Muslims and um, 
they then led to you could say like they started a propaganda campaign to to speak to warn other other brazilians other obviously portuguese brazilians about these troublesome muslims or moors as they were called to refer to or malays and then so you had some newspapers um in articles written in, in in rio where they spoke about if you come across any muslims you have to interrogate them arrest them if anyone's found with any any anything with arabic on it or like someone's got a muslim sounding name they either get arrested interrogated or deported and then you had a number of West Africans who were West African Muslims, sorry, who were deported back to West Africa. Um, a number were enslaved. Um, a few were unfortunately ex- executed, um, and some were imprisoned as well. And so, so, I mean, you just you just had a very anti-Islamic stance that the government took took um, took in, in, in during that period. And one thing which is remarkable for me, just looking at what happened after the aftermath of the actual re- um, revolt, was that it didn't stop those that those Muslims that were staying in Brazil, it didn't deter them from them still trying to practice their faith. But unfortunately, they had to do it in secrecy. And you had a number of reports. There was one famous report in the early um, 20th century, like I think it was 1911, where um, an elderly Muslim, he spoke about how the religion has died out in Bahia because a number of the Muslims had either been deported or those that were still like living in Brazil, they had to kind of cover their hide their faith so much that even their children wasn't aware that they were Muslims, and that's how the faith that's how the faith unfortunately died out um, like, towards the um, the beginning of like the nineteenth the twentieth century. Sorry, so that's quite, that's quite that's quite unfortunate. But a number of those West African Muslims who were deported, many of them landed in uh, arrived in either Lagos or Benin, and they they built a number of what in in modern day Nigeria we call them Brazilian mosques. And there were mosques that were using the Baroque um, architecture style, which is quite prevalent in the in the churches in Brazil. So you have a number of mosques that are still standing in Lagos today that the architecture is very similar to like churches in, in Brazil because and they were built by a number of these Afro-Brazilian um, Muslims who arrived back in West Africa. Subhanallah. So that's part of the legacy. That's part of the legacy of, of, of these West African Muslims. And what I wanted to do, and hopefully this this is what I try to do in the book, and what I try and do in the documentary. Yes, we're aware of, you know, that the unfortunate history in terms of that number of these Muslims were enslaved, but rather than dwelling on slavery itself and the persecution that it was for me, I wanted to stress, I want to stress the importance of their fight in terms of trying to preserve their religion. And you can look back on them and, and say that, you know, they had a very difficult life when in reality, in terms of, and say that they were unsuccessful unsuccessful in terms of their revolts. Whereas from a Muslim perspective, you're looking at it like, no, they preserved their religion most of them inshallah died as muslims so they were successful from an islamic perspective and it's something that we as muslims can draw inspiration from because they were a minority within a minority in brazil because we know obviously the minority were black people within that the minority were black muslims but yet despite that they still preserved their faith they still had their dignity and they still was able to be a catalyst in order to inspire people for generations to come like we're speaking about them now and even if you look at the story of like Prophet Yusuf salam, we don't look at Prophet Yusuf and say that he was a slave, but he was enslaved. But that was part of his story. Yeah, do you understand what I mean? So what I'm trying to say is, when we're contro- in terms of us Muslims, when we're controlling the narrative, it's not to look about look back at these unfortunate parts of our history in, in terms of a form of pity, but it's to to marvel at that. Yeah, despite that they were enslaved, despite that they were in these horrific conditions, they still maintained their faith. There's still some stories of um, one particular 
there was um west african muslim called uh alufa rufino he was enslaved but he bought his freedom within about i think six years then he traveled back to west africa he would travel back to sierra leone to learn about islam then he traveled back to brazil to teach about islam and I've, I mentioned that in my book as well, but when I'm reading stories like that, that, is, that despite that he was enslaved, he bought his freedom. And not only did he say, OK, I want to go back to my country and live amongst the Muslims. He went back to Sierra Leone and he was originally from Nigeria. So he went to like a neighboring country, learned about Islam, learned more about Islam and then traveled back to Brazil to teach people about Islam. And this was in the 14th century. Yeah. No, what you're bringing up is very important. And um, it reminds me, of course, about, you know, the Muslim experience in Al-Andalus um, and, and the fall of Granada and how similarly, you know, those Muslims who were remaining had to hide their Islam. And over time, it, it eventually just dissolved um, because of similar tension and, and stress. Um, you hear similar stories in, as you're sharing in Brazil and I'm sure in other parts of, of Islamic history. Uh, and even today, I mean, we're seeing now... Now, there's probably more of a soft war on, on the Muslim community in some parts of the West. And uh, and you're seeing similar things where people are either trying to have more integrity and honor and teaching their tradition and maintaining um, their lifestyle, especially um, when it's not bringing any harm to anybody. Um, but you're also seeing Muslims who are losing their identity and changing the narrative of Islam in order to appease the political environment and, and voice of the time. Yes, and that's what I'm more worried about. Like you said, the soft war. This now we've gone from colonialism to ideological colonialism. And that's something that I don't think many Muslims are aware of because we're trying to fit in. We're trying to, unfortunately, some people are trying to sell the religion just to kind of appease the, those that are in power. When when you look at back when you look back in history, those people that we celebrate, those people that were great, they didn't compromise. And I think that's something that we as Muslims, we need. but again, a lot of that comes from a lack of understanding of of some of these people's histories. Because if you're just looking at when we was great and when we was in power, you're not going to you're not going to be able to draw inspiration for the time that we're in now because we're not in power. We are the minority. So that's why looking at people like the Muslims in in early America, or the Muslims in South America, like in Brazil, what you can draw from it in terms of for me, not only is it, is a form of dawah to educate non-Muslims about the history that Islam has had in these particular countries, but it's also a source of inspiration. That's what I think for Muslims living in the West, because we are a minority, we are under this, like you said, this soft war and this ideological colonialism, but this, but we still can overcome it, this, because we've got other examples in history has been in similar predicaments to what we've got. And that's why I think it's important that these types of stories are told and we can draw lessons from, rather than just looking at the great period of Islam and the so-called golden era of Islam, when we're just looking back in the, nostalgically about how great we was, but they lived a very different life to what we're living now because they were in power. So that's why I think these types of stories is important for our, our, our collective history, um, as 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 important as like the whole the so-called golden era of Islam, which everyone's trying to get back to. Brother Habib, so why don't you tell us more about how Islam is looking in Brazil today? Is there a revival of this historical awareness? Um, are there practicing Muslims in Brazil? Tell us more about what you've learned. Yeah, I, I would definitely say there's a revival now of, of Islam amongst Brazilians. Um, it originally, it's initially started in the 1990s where you had a number of um, economic migrants coming from North Africa, some from West Africa and some from the Middle East traveling to um, Brazil. Um, and you do have a number of, before I actually mention the revival of Islam, there, 
in addition to obviously like the West African Muslim, which I mentioned, which died out in the early 20th century, in the late 19th century and early 20th century, you had a number of Arabs from Syria and Lebanon who traveled to Brazil, or sorry, who, who migrated to Brazil. Majority of them were Christians, but there were some Muslims. So you did have, a, and those Arab and Lebanese descendant um, Muslims have been in Brazil for over 100 years. So other than the Arab and the, sorry, the Syrian and Lebanese Muslims, in the 1990s, you had a number of, like I mentioned earlier, you had a number of economic migrant Muslims traveling traveling to Brazil. And this has led to like a, a slow revival amongst, especially amongst Brazilians of African descent that I came across in Sao Paulo and um, in Salvador. According to, the, according to the last census, there was a, there's about, I think, 35,000 Muslims, but other estimates say that there's about a million Muslims, but that's still a very low minority because Brazil, the population is about 200 million. Yeah, but what I would say, despite, I mean, I, I, I was fortunate enough to visit Salvador a couple of times, which is in northeastern Brazil, um, and, and also went to Sao Paulo and also went to Rio. And even when I spoke to a number of the Muslims there, and I, went, I visited some of the mosques, and they hopefully, inshallah, will be featured in my documentary. And I wanted to find out what is it like to be a Muslim in Brazil? I mean, do you find it very difficult? Um, you know, do you suffer from Islamophobia and things like that? And the overwhelming majority of people I spoke to, they said that, they don't find um, they didn't experience much Islamophobia. That Brazil Brazilians are very tolerant people. If anything, a lot of people were ignorant that they didn't know about Islam because of the media and things like that. But they didn't. There wasn't as much animosity as from what they've experienced or what they heard about um, the Muslim experience in America or or Europe. So that was quite fascinating for me to hear that, despite a very small minority, people were still very interested to hear about islam there are don't get me wrong there are some instances unfortunately of islamophobia islamophobia which does exist but overwhelmingly the people that i spoke to muslim women wearing a hijab saying that they didn't feel any this form of discrimination or anything like that wearing the hijab it was just more a case of people were the fear of the unknown but once they were able to explain what the religion is and you know and maybe certain things that they can and can't do people kind of generally respected like their, their lifestyles and things like that and that's why and that's something hopefully that I want to kind of let people know, especially for Muslims to travel, because, you know, you've got the perception that we know Brazil is a dangerous country, but not everywhere in Brazil is dangerous. But some people have this perception, even non-Muslims, that you can't travel to Brazil or even as a Muslim, you definitely can't go because they're all Catholics. When in reality, me, even myself going and speaking to people that have been in Muslims that, you know, Muslim women that wear the hijab and things like that, they said they felt at ease. They felt at more in, at ease in Brazil than they did in some parts of Europe you know yeah so that's something that I would definitely encourage people to try and learn um about not only the history when you go there but try and learn a bit of Portuguese that probably would help but the Brazilian people that I came across in terms of their interaction with Muslims although they didn't know much about Muslims it wasn't as um difficult as maybe some parts of Europe is in terms of to practice Islam and things like that but if anything it's just a lot of ignorance but when I just spoke to just general people, Brazilians, and I, I spoke to them about my book and the research that I'm doing, a lot of them were actually interested to hear about, oh, there was Muslims in Brazil and like, what was the Islamic presence? So that's why I think the onus is on us as Muslims to try and reach out and let people know about, you know, the history of Muslims in Brazil and even the contributions that Muslims have made in, in modern day Brazil, because I think that's important.
So, so Brother Habib, I'm interested to know if you know more about this other subculture called Candomblé. Um, I think it's also known as Makumba, or, or a Makumba is one practice that they have. And this is a um, subculture, sub-religious culture that in Brazil is known to have more of its African heritage in place. And I wanted to hear your thoughts about what, what this is all about, and does it have any connection to some of the early uh, Africans that were brought to uh, Brazil? Yes, yeah, so Candomblé is a is a religion based on traditional African beliefs. Um, it's very it's prevalent in in Bahia, in um, especially in Salvador, northeastern Brazil, and a lot of those a lot of the traditions, those African traditions, come from the Yoruba tribe. So that's what I, I'm glad you actually asked me that because if you were to ask a lot of the average Brazilian about the Yoruba, they will think of Candomblé, because a number of um, they even speak the Yoruba language. Wow, even in until yeah, today, even in Brazil, until today. Until today, their prayers and things are in Euro- in the Yoruba language, and even in Cuba as well. You've got a number of another form of candomblé, but it's a it's a mixture of Catholicism, traditional African religions, and it's um, again obviously from Islam perspective, it's not it's, it's 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 a traditional. It's like a it's a it's a pagan religion, but it's very prevalent, um, especially in a lot of the African descendant populated communities in South America and also in Central America. Now the candomblé, they all wear white, and there was also a number of um, his, historians. They also speculated whether the white dress did that come from the influence of the Muslims, but there's no evidence which suggests that is the case. I'm not going to say that is the case, but I I met a fascinating woman, which is going to be featured in my documentary. She's um, a priestess of the candomblé religion, and she mentioned the Islam, the presence of the Muslims. That even the way the women wear their headdress. She said that's from the Muslims with how they how the Muslim women used to cover their hijab, and I put a short clip out on YouTube. But she mentioned that, and they also she mentioned that um, the one of the words that they called for um, God, which I mentioned earlier, Olodumare, and another one they called. She mentioned Allah, but she didn't know where it's from, and she wrote Arabic. She said she was taught this from a young age, and she wrote the word Allah in Arabic, but she said she wasn't sure where it was from. But she said she knew it was from the influence from the Muslims, but she did it. She wasn't able to connect the dots until she met a couple of um, Muslims in the mosque that I visited in Salvador. But I'm glad you actually, I'm glad you asked me about the Candomblé because a number, a lot of Brazilians they know about the Yoruba because of Candomblé because a lot of their religious rites come from the Yoruba traditional religion, but they don't know much about the Yoruba Muslims, and that's what I wanted to kind of explain and and speak and, and enlighten them about. So I'm very glad that she asked me about that. Yeah, and are, were there any other? Um, could you detect any other facets or values or beliefs or dances or anything that may be also connected to Islam and the African Muslims? I mean, the fact that she can say Allah, and from some of the Brazilians that I know, some of them even mentioned that their great grandparents knew Arabic, and they never knew how they knew that, but they did. And so it sounds like this is all coming together. Yeah, on Fridays they have like a special ritual and a form of worship and when i spoke to the lady and asked why friday she said that it's maybe comes from the muslim Jumu'ah. i haven't really explored the links between the candomblé religion and islam but i think that's would definitely be a fascinating study for someone to kind of take up on right right and links links are 
you know, links aren't always the same thing as it being the same thing. Like just because there's links to Islam doesn't mean it's currently Islam. And I think a very simple um, example of this is, I mean, when you look at the, you know, any prophet that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent to humanity, they came with that pure message of Tawheed. And then obviously by the time another prophet came, you may find a lot of um, remnants of that previous message still in place, but also a lot of other stuff has been mixed in, you know, lost or edited out. And a simple example, example of this is let's say you know what happened between Sayyidina Isa and Sayyidina Muhammad right they both came with the, with the message of Tawheed but by the time the Prophet Muhammad came a lot of what Isa preached in certain parts of Europe was no longer quite the same message right even though it was linked to it so something like Roman Catholicism came from from a Semitic prophet it came from Tawheed but some of the things you find in Roman Catholicism today will connect to that and a lot of it won't so similarly this could be the case with this group as well no that's very true that's very true Brother Habib Akandi, once again, it's been a pleasure to have you on the show. It's always nice to hear from you, and I love the work that you're doing, and I'm a huge supporter, and I will surely put up that link for your website for the documentary release, and may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give you tawfiq. I mean, barakalafiq, and I love the work you're doing, brother. Just keep it up. That's anything I would say. Barakalafiq and keep it up. Akramakum Allah, Sidi. Akramakum Allah. And inshallah, we'll be in touch for hopefully some more future shows. Bidnillah, Kareem Sirajuddin here. Thank you for tuning in. Please visit nurhuman.com to learn more about how I provide personal, spiritual, and relationship counsel and growth. Don't forget to visit coffeewithkareem.com to see the latest news and updates about this podcast. Please generously help sponsor the show to keep on going at patreon.com slash coffeewithkareem. That's patreon.com slash coffeewithkareem.